Welcome to the Far North Podcast, where we explore everything we love about the Highlands and Islands of Scotland. Each week we research a topic that fascinates us, but which we don't know enough about. Then we bring in an expert to correct what we found. Let's go Far North. Hi Pete. Hi Matt, how's things? Yeah, very good thanks. How are you doing? I am well. I am well. I am enjoying an English summer locked up still, just about. Which is why it's joyous, isn't it, to have the opportunity to dream and to imagine what um, what awaits us um, in the far north when we do get a chance to get there. Yeah, and I'm excited to uh, talk about what we're discussing today. Yeah, so this, I mean, like a lot of things on the far north podcast, this is driven almost entirely by my naivety and ignorance, but um, <laughs> I... I have no idea about Scots or Gaelic or Scottish Gaelic or English in Scotland or what the people of the Highlands speak. Um, And I say that with a fair degree of shame and embarrassment, but also I'm prepared to be honest about it. Um, I feel absolutely uninformed and uneducated about language speaking in Scotland. Yeah, I think this is a really interesting thing. It's something I know a little bit about. Um, I'm a bit of a languages geek, as as you know, so it's something I've dug into slightly, um, but it's not something I'm hugely well informed about. I, I'm I'm interested in languages, you know, all over the world, but also in the British Isles. It's quite interesting that um, the British Isles is actually quite a multilingual place, although masquerading as a dully monolingual English speaking. You know, from the outside, you might just think everybody just speaks English. But as you zoom in and zoom in, there's actually a lot of different languages spoken um, throughout um, throughout the islands. So it's really interesting to um, focus on Scotland and think about what's there and what is the linguistic uh, landscape like. So um, yeah, and Scots particularly as a as a thing. What is that? Yeah, and it's interesting. And, and I think even you saying you know on the outside looking in, that's perception. But I think that's the the maybe the rut that I that my linguistic bias falls into as well because even hearing you say that I'm kind of like reminded of how diverse and rich our dialects and languages are in the British Isles and but you know for the most part what's in the I I do just think of kind of southern southern English I grew up in Oxford live in the southwest Um, I think I have a completely London centric view of language or at least home county centric view of language which again I don't I, I can't say I'm enormously proud of but it it just is what it is and I, there's a bit of me that really wants to shake it off and um you know I'm, I am one of those people when you hear a say a Liverpudlian accent or a Mancunian accent on the radio I'm excited and kind of refreshed by the reminder that we are not all kind of southern speaking wallies like me <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, there's, a, there's a difference, isn't there, between being uh, enthusiastic about it and committing to it. So I, I would say I'm enthusiastic about and interested in the idea of the other languages of the UK and the British Isles. Um, I have done nothing about that, really. So, I mean, I live mm. uh, not quite a stone throw, but a short drive from Wales. And, you know, I would describe myself as the kind of person who would have the ambition to know a bit about Welsh if I'm within, you know, an hour's drive of it. I've done nothing about that. I'm, mm-hmm. I get, at university, I took a couple of classes, and I can probably remember two or three words. 
but uh, but nothing really. Um, so I haven't done very much about that. Um, so I would encourage you, if you are going to move to Scotland, to know a little bit about the linguistic um, context that you're moving to and what the, what that means and what all the words mean. Okay. Well, perfect. I mean, and I, and I think, you know, no no podcast worth its salt would omit this, would it? So um, it feels like a good thing for us to start to research into. Um, and of course, I think there is some very, very superficial understanding of Scots. Um, you know, I, I'm, I, my family have always sung Old Lang Syne kind of on, on New Year's Eve. And you know, there's always, I, I can think of a smattering of words that I think probably are Scots or mm. I don't know that for sure or or Scottish Gaelic um, and you know the kind of Robbie Burns's poems always wheeled out at various points um, in my childhood as a kind of nod to Scottish culture but it really doesn't go further than that for me so I have a very flickering awareness of it um, so I guess yeah this is a open book research task for you I you, think you are going to come to regret that you're going to come to regret that. I'm, I'm such, <laughs> I'm such a geek on these things. Um, I mean, you know my capacity for being boring on subjects that I'm interested in. So I'm, I'm about to go full bore. I think on, on a subject that fascinates me. And uh, you will need to rein me in and tell me when I'm becoming. If we start, if, if I start going into Pictish prepositions, you know that the wheels have come off this whole enterprise. Okay, I know when. To, I, I know when to hover above the stop recording button. And I'll uh, I'll press it straight away. Okay, so there's the brief for this uh, podcast for this one. I want you to go and find out a bit more about language in Scotland. Where is it spoken? What's spoken? Um, history, all of it. Yeah, Philly boots. That sounds like a good plan. But the only thing I would say is the best laid plans are mice and men gang aft a glay. What do you think about that? I I couldn't agree more. Good. Where did you get that from? It's uh, it's Rabbi Burns. Is it? Hey Pete, we're back. Hey, I am back, fresh from my research. What you got? Um, well, as I warned you, I've got loads. I went down loads of rabbit holes. Um, I pulled out some old um, bits of research I'd done on other things. I got totally distracted reading about Pictish history. Um, lo- this is fascinating, basically. There's loads in this, so you are going to have to keep me on the straight and narrow so we don't have um, medical emergencies of people just collapsing into boredom as I, <laughs> as I drone on about the linguistic history of Scotland, which is, to me, absolutely fascinating. Okay, well... Um, well, start where you want to, though. But t- just yeah, w- what came out as the most, the most interesting? What's the most interesting starting point for you? So, well, so I think I mean the the point is that comes out from reading into this that languages are about people, right? So when you look at the history of the uh, the languages moving into and out of Scotland and how they change, this is about people moving into and out of Scotland and indeed the rest of the the British Isles. So the the, the first thing that we don't know very much about is Pictish. So the Picts, who were in Scotland before 
the uh, the other peoples that joined the community of Scotland in various ways, you know, by arriving in boats and hacking into people, or by uh, moving up and farming, or by you know, however those people arrived from Ireland, from the rest of uh, Great Britain, from uh, Scandinavia, um, from uh, mainland Europe, in the shape of the Romans. You know, before all, all that, the earliest. Uh, indication of the culture of Scotland that we have is the Picts. Um, so you you probably be familiar with the Pictish carved stones and etc. So those people would have had a language, uh, which is probably it is thought now a Gaelic Gaelic language. Um, but we don't have anything more than a couple of uh, place names and a couple of proper names to indicate what that is. And it seemed like even in the twentieth century, people had assumed or thought or possibly hoped that that language was a you know, non-Indo-European uh, language separate from the rest of the linguistic tradition of the rest of Europe. Um, but that's a bit like Basque. So Basque today in uh, modern-day France and Spain is non-Indo-European. People don't really know where it came from. It is possible, possibly likely, that it's a, a relic of the languages that were spoken in those lands before the migrations of the Indo-European peoples across the Asian steppe. So a long, 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 long time ago. So there was an idea that maybe um, Pictish was the same, but from the few fragments that are remaining, it seems now more likely that it's a Celtic language, or it was a Celtic language. But it's not spoken anymore. We don't know anything more about that. So then overlaid from that was Irish Gaelic. Uh, so when the people moved into Scotland from Ireland, um, they brought their language with them. As, you know, people tend to do, you know, suitcase, toothbrush, language. Those are the things you've got to take with you when you're moving to a new country. And um, that that language gradually spread throughout almost the whole of Scotland, becoming pretty dominant throughout the lands, um, maybe not quite down as far as the borders, but, you know, north of Fife and et cetera, that, um, that whole land became dominantly... Gaelic speaking, and today, um, as you'll know, still in the um, the Highlands and particularly the Islands, Gaelic is still the language spoken, which is related to Irish Gaelic um, and a Celtic language, so very different to English. You know, um, as the proud uh, holder of a something like a sixty-two day streak and Scot uh, Scottish Gaelic on Duolingo, I can tell you it isn't anything like English. <laughs> it's really quite hard. Um, so uh, that re that replaced the Pictish language by the 11th century and became dominant in, in Scotland. Um, then there's Norse. You'll have heard of the Vikings. Uh -huh. uh, they, 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 they arrived in Scotland much as they arrived in the rest of, uh, rest of Britain and indeed the rest of Europe uh, and the Middle East. They did a pretty good job on it. Uh, so there's lots of uh, you know, evidence, historical, linguistic... Uh, cartographical of their uh, their arrivals. So there's loads of place names um, that you'll recognise that have Viking elements that show where they, they landed, like uh, Shandwick. Um, the, the wick on the end is from Vic, which means bay in, um, in Norse. Mm. And the language they left behind um, became known as Norn, which was like a Danish Scandinavian language, which is spoken... And we were spoken in Orkney... Um, until really recently, so 1850, the last speaker of Norn died on, on Orkney, which is 
not that long ago in in, in context. That's um, quite remarkable. Okay, so this is great. So just to recap, so you, we've got Picts and Pictish language originally, then Irish Gaelic, and then Norse. So we've kind of got these these flows of, and these are flows of the most, what the most dominant language of the time, or just it's kind of these kind well, of. Well, I guess it's of, the most dominant most dominant language um, in a particular area. So there's always, okay. as far as I can tell, been a cohabitation of different language communities in the area which is now Scotland. Um, so, you know, you would have had probably uh, Norn or Norse speakers in Orkney at the same time as you'd had Gaelic speakers in Ullapool. Got I've it. slightly made that up, but, you know, the yeah. kind of that, basically you'd have those, those same speakers. Okay. At the same time. Keep going. So what's next? Well, uh, so I just think, just for a moment, it's interesting to how those languages overlay with each other. So place names like, um, and you see this throughout the rest of uh, the world, I, I think. So there's a place, a really great place, by the way, up on the north coast called Smoo Cave. Uh, Smoo, the reason I first wanted to go there was for the name Smoo, which is just really satisfying to say. So it seems to come from a Norse word, um, which I don't know how to pronounce, Smoog or Smooger, which means hole. So this is basically, Smoo Cave is basically cave cave. And there's lots of places where you have that kind of overlap. Um, I really like, there's a place near where I am uh, in England called Breeden Hill. And Breeden Hill means hill, hill, hill. Uh, Bree is Celtic for hill. Don is Old English, Anglo-Saxon for hill. And hill, you'll realise, is, is English for hill. Um, so and you see that same thing playing out in Scotland where you have uh, place names that are built of multiple elements. Scots then joined the party. Um, with the Anglo-Saxons arriving into uh, Britain. So the uh, Anglo-Saxon language is in Old English, sometimes called. Uh, it is pretty much incomprehensible to a modern English speaker, that language. It's the Germanic language, the language of Beowulf. Um, it's, you, can't just, you can't just read it without uh, learning how to speak it, essentially. And from that language descended modern English, but also from that language descended modern Scots. So as those peoples moved up through uh, England, through, through Great Britain, towards Scotland, as they moved north over time, that language descended in the same way into modern Scots as it did into modern English. And you can see there's lots of differences in vocabulary, grammar. So, for example, uh, modern Scots has the word kirk for church, which it's kind of kept from the German, uh, or in the same way as modern German. Muckle for big, which is um, like Mitchell in Old English. So if someone's called Mitchell, their name means big or great, and Scots has kept the same word, muckle. Or sonsi for attractive or lucky, and that comes from the Gaelic. Oh, I, I hear that a lot when I'm out there, yeah. I mean, it must be yeah. distracting, right, as yeah. you're, whenever you're walking People around. Often I, I actually calling me sonsi. I think you may have given away that you spent a lot of your time in 15th century Scotland, because I think that's when that was most common, <laughs> commonly used. Um, and then, so th so that's Scots. And then there is, of course, all of the um, the the kind of modern, more modern immigrant languages in Scotland that are kind of continuing to add to that rich linguistic landscape that's there. And will you know this process will be continuing, right? The people who bring their own language will affect the speakers of other languages around them. So it's a uh, it's a really um, 
it's just a really rich and exciting situation in Scotland linguistically. And Scots particularly, I think, suffers from people assuming it's just English with a Scottish accent. Now, there is English with a Scottish accent. <laughs> in standard English, air quotes, uh, is spoken in Scotland very, very widely, and it is spoken with a Scottish accent, but that is different to Scots, which is its own language. Yeah, and I think this is a really important point. Um, and I, I think this is where a lot of misunderstanding is held amongst um, non-Scots speakers, that this idea that Scots is a language as opposed to an accent or a dialect of English. Um, and again, I think, you know, I've been one of them in the past, this perhaps a complete unawareness that Scots is a separate language to Scottish Gaelic. Um, I think that's this is a whole area of of unknown for so many. Yeah, and it, it's even more complicated because Scots has become overlaid over the last couple of hundred years with so much English re-imported back on top of it and has been so effectively suppressed by uh, the dominant English language of the uh, of, of Britain, of the United Kingdom and the British Empire, um, that it's been re-colonised, uh, re I would say, linguistically by English overlaid on top of Scots. And then there's also a really interesting fact that many Scots speakers, um, well, all Scots speakers also speak English, and many will um, dial up and down the level of the, the, the whether they're speaking Scots or English, depending on who they're speaking to. And I read something really interesting about how it's common for Scots speakers, even speaking to another Scots speaker, if they haven't been heard, they'll rather than repeating what they said in the Scots more loudly, they'll say it in standard English. I'm right. saying standard English. I probably shouldn't be doing it. They'll say it in English. Mm. Mm. Um, so, they, so it's it's sometimes quite hard to perceive that difference because it's kind of self-censored and it's a little bit um, under the radar. So, I mean, you wouldn't it, it, you know, it's not unreasonable to have not noticed that it is um, a different language. Um, although, when you hear Scots spoken um pretty purely there's sometimes where it you know it's really hard to understand what's being said because it's different grammar there is different vocabulary mm. there's different pronunciation mm. it is um it can be challenging but i think that's a really important point to make is that it is a language so you know for anyone like me who's still on the early stages of their understanding of language in that this part of the world the temptation is to think it's like you said it's it's someone speaking English with a Scottish accent, which probably is the most offensive position you could take on it. Um, but I think it's a mistake very commonly made. It's interesting, though, that the bits of Scots which are well known throughout the English-speaking world, some of those are very clearly not English with an accent. Like you mentioned Old Lang Syne. What does that mean? It's not English. Yeah. Um, it means um, you know, old long since. But there are different words, and you know that's that's very, it's extremely well known. People sing it all the time without thinking about what those words mean. In fact, you know it was really moving to me that the um, the EU Parliament sang "Old Lang Syne" to the United Kingdom as we left the EU. That's a really uh, a really um, striking thing. That kind of emotional core that that can strike mm. for somebody like me who's not a um, not a Scots speaker at all is really. Um, uh, really remarkable, mm. and you know, I I too had heard you know the um, 
addressed to a haggis by Robert Burns. Mm. Fair fair, your honest, sonsy face, great chieftain of the Putin race. Uh, you know, a lot of those were sonsy. There's that word. That's where I, oh, yes. that's where I got that from Lovely. before. That, that's in the Robert Burns um, mm. poem. And, uh, yeah, and as I said before, the best laid plans of mice and men gang after Glay. That's, again, Robert Burns. We tend to cut that off. The best laid plans of mice and men. Hmm. And we don't... The last bits are gang after Glay. Yeah, those, I had, those I had are, no idea that was that was those were its origins at all. Um, yeah, just you're right. Just yeah. a, a phrase that we just read off the tongue all the time. Um, mm. Wow. Okay. So, so it's not just English with an accent, mm. and it, you know, up to during and and beyond the act of union between England and Scotland, it was a you know it was the language it was the national language of Scotland, and it was the language of the court, and it's what James the first and sixth would have spoken. Although when he moved to London to become James the Sixth, to become James the First, he um, <laughs> get that right. <laughs> he uh, um, that's so he he then shifted to speaking English rather than speaking Scots, um, start, starting a tradition that you see playing out through lots of influential um, intellectuals and, and leaders over the following centuries. In fact, you know. Um, uh, people like David Hume would have spoken and written Scots, but was self-censoring and putting himself, making sure that he was speaking English so that people throughout the rest of uh, Britain could understand more clearly what he was saying. Yeah, which which brings me on to the other question that was in my mind around, yeah, kind of where's it gone and to what extent has that been deliberate? You know, has it has it has it been edited, literally edited out of our kind of... Ireland's, are, are the, the United Kingdom's history, and or has that been an accidental decline? Um, yeah, well, I think some of it was, some of it's accidental, some of it's self-censoring, some of it's just about the general um, smoothing out of linguistic difference that's come from mass media, broadcast media, um, general better mobility. But some of it's quite deliberate. You know, the BBC has a big role to play in this, Um just like with English regional dialects, um, you know, up until very, very recently, it you know received pronunciation, kind of what what you and I speak, is uh, was seen as the only proper way to speak to the nation. So you wouldn't have heard a Scottish accent really, let alone Scots being spoken on the BBC. And there's clips of you know, Lord Reith himself, Scottish, talking about how it would have been inappropriate to have Scots spoken on the BBC because it would have been laughed at mm. and that's you know that that kind of sense that this is something um you know ridiculous it, you know has really kind of stuck around that's really hard to to um to get through and I I don't actually know too much about it but the the parallels are there obviously with Welsh and the um you know the up until the 60s I think when people were being beaten in schools for speaking Welsh um when they should have been speaking English and the 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 near demise then of Welsh paralleling Scots Gaelic and Scots, and I hope there is being a bit of a renaissance now, a kind of effort to bring those back. And you know you can see it in Scotland really strikingly. And I've noticed over the last you know uh, couple of decades the increase in the public use of Gaelic in signage, for example, road signs. Um, for Gaelic, that's really striking. You don't see that so much in Scots, although you know the outside of the Parliament building in Edinburgh is covered in Scots because they've got lots of um, poetry quotes there. So it's 
it, it's publicly there and um you know and it, it's quite there is an interesting um resurgence i think it seems to be quite an exciting time for scots at the moment it seems there's a big uh, there's a rebirth going on and some some exciting artistic and um journalistic work going on it so that's been really helpful and um again i don't want to be the uh the kind of giver out of marks but i will like i think we can give you a 10 on a a 10 yeah i mean you haven't you haven't said out of how many <laughs> no, I out of um 10 and uh thank you i feel enlightened but i know that you potentially found someone to enlighten us further so i i have so i found alistair heather to talk to us and give us i mean it's generous i think it would say over generous of you to give me 10 out of 10 for that particularly since the, you haven't checked it against any facts i could have been i could have been saying anything but alistair heather however is a real expert in this he's a writer broadcaster and expert on the scots language including being a scots speaker himself which helps um and he you know the work that he does journalistically and um through d- documentaries helps to build a better understanding and a, a wider recognition of the scots language so i think he can really help us out he spent two years working on the subject with Aberdeen University. He's written in various newspapers in Scotland. And his BBC documentary Rebel Tongue went out early this year and is available still on BBC iPlayer. Great. Let's have a chat with him. Great. We'll bring him in. Hey, Alistair. How are you doing? Morning, man. I'm doing fine. How are you? Good. Really, really excited to uh, have you on the podcast. This is great. Delighted to be here. Good. So, I mean, I um, I saw Rebel Tongue, your BBC program, when it first came out a couple of months ago, and then I um, I watched it again before we were talking. It's kind of it's really it's a really exciting thing to get the chance to talk about the Scots language, um, all the implications of that, what it what it is, where it comes from, what its future is. But can you just tell us a bit about how what what it means to you? How did you get involved with the language and the campaigning and the writing around it? I sure. So it was pretty straight up and doing in that I was raised in a wee village in Angus called Newbiggin, which is a Scots place name in itself. It just means the new houses. Um, and uh, so most of my neighbours uh, were all Scots speakers. My mum, my granny and granda all just kind of spoke Scots pretty casually and normally around about the house and around the community. Um, one thing in research in Rebel Tongue that I discovered that I just hadn't remembered for some reason was our head teacher at the local primary school was like a total Scottish cultural kind of trailblazing fanatic. Um, so he, uh, the, the primary school had 30, 30 wee bairns in it. It was dead small. And he taught us, he, like, he'd play the bagpipes instead of ringing a bell in the morning to let us count it's time for school. <laughs> he'd um, he'd run uh, chanter lessons in the evening. He'd te- teach us how to pluck pheasants and gut fish. And, and wow. one thing he did, uh, I know you, some boy. Uh, one thing he did to, to make sure that uh, we learnt Scots properly was he'd invite old folk that were retired in for the village uh, just to come in and just to kind of uh, tell us stories, tell us the history of the, the the place, tell us some of the traditions, but also just to uh, demonstrate the correct use of the local dialect of Scots. Um, and we won, well, we came joint first in a nationwide Scots language competition while I was at primary school. Uh, oh, we wow. tied with some uh, place called Waz in Shetland that I have never heard of. But uh, so I, I, I hadn't, I hadn't realised any of that uh when and as an adult, like I just kind of we just forget what happens at primary school, um, and 
after that, I went, as most Scottish folk do, um, you go off to high school. Uh, high school was much more English-speaking environment because it was in a different... It was in a place mm-hmm. called Karnusti, which is uh, generally called Karsnuti because it's a wee bit posh. <laughs> um, and then I lived overseas for about five, six years. And when I was away, I had a, a girlfriend in New Zealand who's a linguist. And she was like, oh, you speak Scots. Tell us a bit about your, your grammar and that kind of structure. And I was like, do you speak Scots apparently, but I've not spoken in five years. And like, she was coming up with all these, like she had all these grammar tables for Scots. And I was like, I didn't know you were allowed that stuff. I thought that was just for the real languages, you know? Um, I thought that was for your mere legitimate stuff. But while I was in New Zealand, I was there for a few years, um, they were having a real renaissance around Maori. Uh, so Maori, obviously they, one of the indigenous languages, it had been really taken up by wider society and they've been doing this great thing where they'd get um, old old members of the Maori community to come and teach it to the youngest members because that middle-aged group of people, folk in their 40s and 50s, had had it beaten out of them, had it prevented from speaking it. And it was having this real positive... So learning that language, and it's spreading... So loads of white folk were learning it. It was becoming more common in New Zealand to call New Zealand Eotearoa, like the Maori name, and... It was coming back to kind of wider cultural consciousness. And that was having all these additional cultural benefits where New Zealanders were kind of creating a new, hybrid, exciting, inclusive, multicultural society. And I thought that was all just smashing. So when I got back to Scotland and saw that Scots was still seen as a kind of like like gutter tongue, bastard, mm. uh, cousin of English, no very good, no good enough, no real language. Uh, the culture associated with it isn't good enough. I was like, well... Maybe maybe it's time we should do something about that. So, um, I when I got home, I just made the conscious decision to to use Mayor Scots um, just in life. And uh, and so that's so you that's in your private life as well. So you know we've been corresponding back and forth, and there's you've been doing that in. Uh, I don't know if that's in Scots, but certainly there's some. It looks to me like um, uh, there was some uh, vocabulary in there I didn't recognise as, as an English speaker. Uh, and you, you write in columns in newspapers and the TV program as well. So it feels like a campaign, right? Is that, is that, is that how you describe it? So I, I see how for the outside it looks like that. Um, I didn't see it. I didn't see myself as an activist or a campaigner or anything like that. It's mere that. So I, like, as you say, I write columns for the national newspaper Um the newspaper that supports an independent Scotland. Subscribe today. Um, I also write for, uh, the, I wrote for the Herald for a while as their Scots uh, features writer. And I write for the Scotsman and other titles in English. And it was when I started off doing the writing thing, I was about 22 and I was living in a tune called Lithgay, which features in Rebel Tongue. And I started writing for the local magazine there, circulation, you know, like 4,000. And it's just for local Scots speaking people anyway. So when I started writing columns about you know, the new bike path and uh, the new shop opening in tune. I just wrote in Scots because like, fuck, Abdi here speaks it. I speak it. I need to get better at this. So I might as well just do it. And it wasn't a, a campaigning thing. It wasn't a, it was much more just like, well, I'm, I, I speak, I speak Scots fairly well. I need to get better as Abdi does when you're, when you haven't been trained properly, formally in a language. But I was like, look, I'm, I can use this. These, these, these audience can read it. How do we know just just use it and so I just started using it and the thing is nobody cared the editor was an English boy uh, but he'd lived he'd lived around there for maybe 10 years or something so he he had a pretty decent grasp of what was going on linguistically and he's like yeah it's fine just just batter in and nobody 
people talked about the columns and stuff, but nobody mentioned the fact it was in Scots. Oh, so really? I was just like, okay. well, yeah, 40 years ago, that would have been a big campaigning thing, but Scotland is changing so fast just now. Um, folk are much more comfortable with a bit of the old cultural experimentation, you know? Um, yeah. So I think, I think I've come along at a time when it didn't need to be such an activist campaigner like maybe the previous generation were um i can just inherit the hard work done by others to make scotland <laughs> a bit more culturally comfortable with itself and i can just write in scots or english as feels like the right medium for the right message which is what it's all about i'm really curious part of uh you know the the mission of the far north podcast is about kind of delving into stories in real life in the highlands and islands and not the mm not the kind of headline and you, you kind of touched on that a little bit, you know, the, the, the sense of the rest of the UK or English in particular, so kind of seeing Scots as this kind of slightly inferior dialect or language, you know, the, I mean, I, I, I kind of hold my hand up fully here as someone who is ignorant about it, where it's spoken by who, why. Um, so I, yeah, I'm kind of curious about the prevalence of it in Scotland and particularly in the Highlands. And Aye, you're right. You're right. Let's just let's go back to basics there. So first of all, your ignorance is not your fault on this. I would I th- I I am the this isn't an anti English thing. It's nobody else's fault but your own. If you can't look after your own culture, like nobody else is going to do it for you. You know, like we're no the English don't look to the French to subsidise their bloody language. You know, um, <laughs> no, we should we should be uh, so. Just, just to go back right to basics, just a very, maybe you've already done this in your introduction, but um, like Scots is a Germanic language, it's a cousin of English, and it, is, it was originally spoken by a few Ang- Anglic settlers, kind of like the Anglo-Saxons, well the Angles, the Angles were the Eans that came up to what's now the Scottish borders, um, and the Lothians, and um, they had this kind of very old Germanic tongue, we're talking about sort of 600 AD, so sort of 1400 years ago. Scotland at that time was uh, Gaelic-speaking in all the important areas. So the main body of Scotland was Gaelic-speaking, all the kings were Gaelic-speaking. Um, but it wasn't until there was a, a cultural pivot towards farming, towards Norman styles of uh, kind of uh, social structure, that Scotland pivoted more towards the Lothians because it's the most fertile land in, in all of Scotland by a distance. So as we became a mere farming and less a cattle rearing kind of culture and became mere Normanized through intermarriage, um, the Lothians became mere important. The language of the Lothians was this uh, kind of Germanic uh, dialect. And slowly that started getting picked up by elite circles in Scotland. Um, and fair there, very slowly, as uh, as people of influence started to be kind of sent around to the new royal boroughs that were being implanted into the, the Gaeltacht, into the Highlands, around sort of talking about sort of around Banff, around Peter Heed, around Dundee. Like as these places were being founded, they were being populated by Germanic speakers for the south of Scotland, uh, the north of England and areas around Wales, just because that's where some Norman people were coming from. And they brought mm. this early Germanic language to all these east coast lowland areas um, but very far north in these lowland areas, right the way up to Caithness, you know, and that kind of that was the the kernel of what became Scots. So 
To that, you add loads of Norse vocabulary. To that, you add loads of Gaelic vocabulary. To that, you add different speech patterns from like Irish and things like that. But fundamentally, the the core of it was this Anglic dialect. And that pattern, eh, the spirit of the language, is still what's there today. So if you just think about all the... Say that... Um, if you think geographically of Scotland, if you imagine the sea levels rose by five metres, all the Scots areas would be drooned and all the Gallic areas would still be kind of sticking about, right. sticking up out the water. So uh, <laughs> Scots have spoken from like Ayrshire right across that central belt, all the way up the east coast, um, particularly densely spoken in Ayrshire, the borders and the northeast kind of Murray and uh, the northeast area mm. with also... Um, Orkney and Shetland have the highest density. So Shetland's like 60% of folk speak Scots as a first language. Uh, they're very, there's very distinct dialect. We'll probably get to that at another point. But um, so that's that's what the language, that's what it came from, and that's roughly where it's spoken. And so my area, um, Angus, we hey, we're no the broadest speakers. We didn't hear the coolest dialect, no like the Arcadians <laughs> or something like that. Um, but it's. Uh, uh, it's been there for about a thousand years developing and it's got incredible literature and songs and much of the kind of traditional culture and norms have been passed down through Scots in, in my part of the world. So I guess every, I mean, the things that everybody knows, even if they don't know, they know them about Scots are Old Lang Syne, those words, they're kind of Robert Burns poems that people will have heard, great chieftain of the pudding race, you know, that had even managed to permeate down to, darkest Surrey mm-hmm. where I grew up you know that's still that was still known um mm-hmm. that, that's the, that's the, the the kind of very tip of an iceberg of a, of a really rich literary literary tradition um which it extends to today I, I I guess so can you tell us a bit about how that's developed I'm, I'm really interested in like today who's working artistically in Scots at the moment yeah, how, what's that landscape look like now the landscape right the now, Faye, about 2005 onwards, is massively improved. So you're right, there's this ancient literature that goes all the way back. Rabbi Burns is a, a, a big shining light in that. Um, and other kind of folk that used a lot of Scots were like Walter Scott. And there was all these writers like J.M. Barry that wrote um, uh, Peter Pan. Mm-hmm. He was uh, he wrote a lot, a lot in Scots and he was Faye, just a, a village no too far from mine. Um, so there's that period when writing in Scots for as part of the British Empire was fine and you could be a tremendous success. Um, so it wasn't considered a barrier between us. It was just something that English readers accepted. You wouldn't understand every word, but it was something you could still engage with. So the, the recent idea of Scots being incomprehensible and all that, that's a relatively, that's a 20th century emergence. Right. Um, but aye, the day, it's, it, it's honestly, there's, there's so much going on. I'm feared to talk about it because i'll miss folk out but um there's okay to start with there's um there's there's i've been a tremendous poetic tradition in scots so you can move for like barns full of poetry that's written in scots year in year out in loads of different styles in loads of different uh veins and loads of different uh kind of scenarios um that is so well established and Burns have been studying at school forever. So poetry in Scots, partly inspired by Rabbi Burns, but there's a huge other tradition there that he grew out of. And all the kind of Hume McDermid, uh, kind of synthetic Scots of the 20th century have influenced all the great writers. So there's a guy, Don Patterson, for example. He's a poet, The Guardian, called the most important poet working in Britain today. 
he writes in English and in Scots. Um, and it is just part of the creative sphere here now. So just uh, last week, or uh, whenever this podcast goes out, X, a number of weeks ago, uh, Scottish Opera did their first full opera in Scots. Uh, well, did, did their first uh, their first uh, libretto in Scots. Um, and that was no longer a shock. Like it is now, so the opera do things in Scots. For I think about 20 years, we've had the National Theatre of Scotland. Um, and they've been really good at just getting Scots on stage. Because you can't... You kind of relate to your audience if you didn't use Scots. I was speaking to a theatre director doing Edinburgh the other day, and he said, if you dare play in Scots, you add 10% to your ticket sales straight away. Because folk in the audience suddenly ken that it's about them. And it's like, oh, like, because we had generations and generations of watching BBC and uh, watching touring English theatre and stuff. And as much as it's good and that's valuable, and uh, like that kind of cultural interaction is really useful, it wasn't about us and it wasn't for us. We were at best an afterthought. Um, so hearing that stuff that's putting in Scots makes it clear that's for us. Uh, something that's been amazingly useful and enjoyable is um, a, a publisher, a publishing imprint called Itchy um who have been publishing titles and titles and titles of new work and translations into Scots. Um, so uh, Harry Potter is new out in Scots and was like a huge sales sensation. You can get uh, Roald Dahl, uh, like the sleek at Mr. Todd for the fantastic Mr. Fox. <laughs> um, there's all of these really great classic bits of literature, the world literature, or set into Scots being accessible and being used really widely. Um, so in terms of literature, we we didn't hate a great, we had a great poetic tradition before the turn of the millennium, but we didn't hate a great prose tradition in Scots. Uh, but now, thanks to loads and loads of translations, thanks to loads and loads of new new work being published anew, there is now a great prose tradition emerging. Um, some of it's dialectal, some of it's kind of a, a, a kind of generic Scots voice, and um, oh, it's a very exciting time. There's still, we're still, Ken, we're st- at the start of the increase, so mm. we're no, this isn't the golden age yet, but it's got all the ha- hallmarks of moving towards that. One of the things we've really picked up in the course of our kind of exploration through Far North is just this really deep connection with the land. And I obviously it's not unique to the Highlands, but it definitely is uh, a, th- a thing um, more than other, other landscapes. Um, there's a sense from the people that come on the podcast that they're kind of inescapably part of that big landscape. Um, that is that is unique to Scotland, um, particularly the Highlands. And I'm, I guess I'm, yeah, I'm just curious about how Scots kind of weaves into that interplay. And does that does that resonate? Massively, massively. So when when we talked about that Germanic uh, dialect being kind of implanted like a colonial tongue into the Highlands, in into Gaelic speaking areas around sort of you know twelve hundreds. It didn't hear loads of words for the landscape, and that was the first thing it it ta- it's taken for Gaelic. So the modern Scots for most landscape features were directly taken for Gaelic, and when you take um, words, you also take the mentalities and a lot of the approaches mm. to that landscape. A lot of the resonances come for that language in. So obviously, uh, the Scots words uh, for things like so you, a glen and a strath 
if you're moving up the road, man, this is important stuff. A glen <laughs> is like a steep-sided valley with a river flowing through it. A strath is a low-lying, fertile valley with like a big late-stage river flowing through the middle of it. Mm-hmm. Um, nows and hows and burns and like all of this kind of all these fundamental words um, for the landscape. We've got mostly fey Gaelic um, and I Scots became because Scots evolved at a time when we were in much closer ties to the land. There's so there's just a tremendous amount of vocabulary and relationship with land that comes across in the language. It really comes across in the poetry as well. Like mm-hmm. the um, like landscape features so heavily in in Scots poetry. So that relationship between Scots and nature it's obviously at risk because our societal relationship with nature is changing but so that's so embedded in the literature that when you day study scots and immerse yourself in it that relationship with nature really comes across so it's this kind of a this romantic sense of being very exposed being very out there in nature and that's a kind of a a lovely thing to hear it's a way for that most most folk in england will ken scots for your likes of train spotting um, <laughs> that's a that's a big distance between those two isn't it it is, but I think what you say there really, really captures a lot of what we we're hearing is just that, yeah, that exposure to the landscape is that sense that you can't, like, you're a product of it and it's part of you, and you can't live a life that is isolated from it if you're going to live in that part of the world. Aye, very um, much so. And frankly, that's one of the things that we just love about it mm-hmm. um, that it's a, there's a reconnection if when you're in that part of part of the country that you don't get anywhere else, in my mm. experience. It's really interesting to hear about the the history and the living culture of the language. I'm, I mean, I'm I'm pretty interested in minority languages in general. I lived in Catalonia for a while, and I um, saw Catalan as a minority language there being spoken every day by people as their lived language. For some people, it was a really passionate part of their identity. For other people, it was just what they spoke. Um, but I'd managed to never think about Scots in that context until I started researching for this conversation and possibly until I started seeing some of those publications coming out you know the Gruffalo and Doric all of a sudden changed my mind about about what that was could you just give us a sense of how that what's the how does that feel for Scots as, as a is it part of that community of minority languages in in the world or in the UK how do you, what do you think about that I mean it certainly is I mind reading about Catalan under uh, General Franco and mm. Franco obviously heavily repressed a lot of uh, aspects of Catalonian regional slash national identity and culture. Um, and he crushed Catalan doing so much that you're only allowed to teach it for three hours a week at school. Mm. We would have murdered for three hours of Scots at school. <laughs> um, so the fact, that, the fact that Catalan was better treated under Franco than Scots has been under successive Scottish administrations is a bloody outrage. Um, of course, of course it is like, so there's 1.5 million Scots speakers. Uh, it is the biggest minority language in the UK. Um, it is listed as vulnerable by uh, UNESCO. It's on the Atlas of Endangered Languages. So it's no... Like I'm, I'm naturally a pretty uh, upbeat, optimistic guy. So I don't, I'm not here to ring the doom bells. But it is, we hate it. We hate to make sure we start using it. We hate to make sure that we teach it to our bairns and pass it on to the next generation, because Scots is one of the six thousand languages that are at risk of just disappearing. Um, mm. And aye, there is, there's such an incredible cultural richness in it that if it goes, we would be 
would be the poorer for it. The hell of the UK would be the poorer for it. Um, but it is. I I didn't I didn't I didn't like the term minority language because in much of Scotland and much of the north of Scotland, the kind of area we're talking about, it isn't the minority language; it's the majority mm-hmm. language. Like places like uh, Peter Heed and Bucky and Shetland and Orkney, like more than fifty percent of the population speak it all the time. So my work, because I basically work in media, what I try and do is give those voices the platform they need so folk can see it as a living, thriving majority language and know mm. as a we can. You didn't want to be bringing the begging bowl out because folk didn't want to join a losing team. If you if you tell the story, oh, Scots is on its last legs, oh, it's it's a way to be flushed <laughs> in the toilet of history, folk didn't want anything to do with it. But if you say here, Scots is a majority language in huge chunks of Scotland. It's hey, a renaissance, right the new. There's this great literature re-emerging. Join in the party. That will, I think, be from a marketing perspective, <laughs> more attractive to uh, to Scots speakers that maybe haven't been using it as much or haven't been using it as many spheres. By the fact, it is it is part of this uh, these European minority languages, and it's uh, the Council of Europe. Uh, their charter for minority languages helps protect Scots and has helped protect Scots. Mm. I think that sounds really attractive. So Matt's um, Matt's going to be moving up there uh, soon. I obviously spend quite a lot of time up there uh, in the Highlands myself, just on the edges of those areas. I think you've been talking about mm-hmm. as they're uh, really densely populated with Scots speakers. So I guess we need a survival kit. What are we going to? What, what are some vocabulary to make sure that we can make the best of that? Yeah, well, although I feel like not survival now. It needs to be how do we join the party? How do you join? Exactly, you exactly. How do you join in the front? So there, I read a great report about Polish folk that moved to Scotland and how they there's a big linguistic difference between Poles that are coming over for like a year or two, max some money, he'd back to Poland, and them that are coming over to settle, right? Uh, so I think we could take a little leaf of their book. Um, the things that you can immediately implement without feeling self-conscious, without anybody thinking you're weird, is use Scots negation straight away. So... Didn't say can't anymore. Leave can't at the border. You can't do something. Oh, I can't do that. Nah, nah, I can't do that. Just accept that immediately. So immediately use I instead of yes. Immediately use Scots negations like canny, uh, goni, uh, havni. Bring that straight in. Um, never say valley or stream again, like glen <laughs> and burn. Like use use the words that Scots people use regardless of what language they're speaking. So Scottish people speaking English will still call it a Galen, will still call it a burn. Um, they'll still call a young person a bairn. Um, so you like use that as your first step. Use the words that Scots people use even when they're speaking English and then build up for there. A personal uh, hero of mine. Oh, sorry. Now I'm going to say my, my, so my, I'm really interested in this because my, my fear in doing that would be that it would sound like I was kind of, you know, taking the piss, or you know, here's, here's an English bloke trying to use, trying to speak Scots. Um, sounds like you're saying that's that's not how it would be interpreted. Not at all. What it's interpreted as subconsciously is you making it clear that you want to belong. You are indicating to your community that you're part of their community and you want to adapt 
to their uh, linguistic mores a wee bit, and it will help you feel accepted, it help you feel a part of it. Um, and I, it's not, it wouldn't be patronising to move to France and badly ask for bagels and stuff when you first arrive. Like it's fine to no be absolutely linguistically spot on. Um, but in my great heroes was a there's a taxi driver that works in Aberdeen. She's a she's Fay originally quite far down south and has an accent no dissimilar to your to your own. Um, and she speaks really broad Scots, like really <laughs> broad Scots, but with a completely English accent. Um, wow. And Abdi just uh, loves her and accepts her, and it's completely fine because it's obviously done. It's all about attitude. If you do it in a condescending way, like if you say, oh, uh, oh, hi, it's it's time for a wee dram, then yeah, you'll get your heat kicked in, and quite <laughs> rightly. Um, but if you just start using it as, as, if you just start implementing it and trying to use it as your natural speech, folk will tack it as the mark of respect it is, you know? Like you are coming to, a, so it's a Scots is the partially submerged national language of a partially submerged nation. So come up the road, join in the party, use the words, be part of that cultural re-emergence that's happening. And uh, yeah, it's it's for Abdi. Scots is a mongrel language, isn't it? Just for some purebred Scots, like kilt-wearing, haggis-chucking yeah. kind of guy. Like you can, it's for Abdi. And there's no reason that you shouldn't be allowed to use it. That's great, and I, and I guess you'd you'd give the same advice to someone visiting, right? Someone even you know, a lot of the people listening to this either have a real love of the place or or a desire to go. Um, you know, so the same advice for the tourist. Hundred percent for a tourist, I would really advise asking folk about Scots words because folk get so passionate about it. So. Um, like if you hear somebody say "druk" at the day, say, "Oh, what's that mean?" and get them into a chat about it because these words are words we learned. Scots is the language of love in Scotland, right? So we learned Scots from we didn't learn it for textbooks and for like Shakespeare lessons. We learned it for our grannies, for our mums, for folk we love and folk we respect. So it's got it's, it's it's words that are much closer to our hearts than the English equivalents. So if you get us chatting about that you immediately get access to a warmer part of ourselves. So as a tourist, I'd use it as a, as a kind of a, a bridge to uh, cross over and meet us on a more personal level. It's fantastic. Really, it's really exciting. I, um, I can't wait to, to give it a go. I'm a little bit worried about getting my head kicked in for doing, for, for, for getting that bit wrong, but I'm, I'm absolutely ah. emboldened to do it now that you've uh, given us that guide. It's really exciting. Um, uh, so if people want to see more about, about about your work and about Scots. So if they're in the UK, they can start with the Rebel Tongue on the BBC iPlayer, which is still available. How else can they find out more about uh, you and what you're doing or about Scots? Well, I'd really recommend. Uh, it's not so much about me. I'll I'll just tick away in the in the in obscurity as always. It's made about if you want to engage with Scots, there's so many good ways of doing it. Um, music, obviously. We've got a tremendous number of great Scots singers. So go and check out your likes of Iona Fife, uh, a young Scots singer for the north of Scotland that's doing tremendous work. And her music is, some of it's modern and some of it's drawn for ancient traditions. And by listening to that, you get immediately tapped into, you know, 600-year-old uh, sort of bothy ballads and stuff like that and uh, sort of great sangs. That's an excellent way into Scottish culture through the language. Um, if you are... If you are um, no speaking Scots, but you live in Scotland, then go and buy the Gruffalo in Scots because they date in all the different dialects. They've got the Dundee Gruffalo, the Shetland Gruffalo, the Doric Gruffalo. Go and read it to your bairns. Give your bairns the gift of um, speaking that additional language, hearing that additional language skill. 
So I'd really recommend music and fun kids' books as a great way in. Good stuff. Great. Alistair, thank you so much uh, for talking to us. That's been really, it's been really exciting, really interesting to, uh, to delve into that. Pleasure, Les. What a treat. I'm, I'm looking forward to getting started. Cheers. Wow, that was interesting. That was really good. I was really glad to speak to Alistair about that. What uh, what an interesting guy. That was really fun as well. Mm. Yeah, um, I felt like we could have gone on for hours. Actually, what a what a font of knowledge on Scots and all things Scots. Yeah, he knows his stuff. And I tell you what, um, my couple of hours of research pale in comparison to somebody who's got a lifetime of experience like that. So there was loads there that I um, I was really glad to get his perspective on. Mm. Give me an example. What 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 stood out for you? So, I mean, I think all the stuff I said before was a little bit academic about the dis- the difference between English with a Scottish accent and Scots as a language. But his point that, you know, he knows somebody who's e- who is English, who speaks Scots with an English accent, really brings that out. That, you know, a couple of other languages I speak, I do it, no doubt, with a very plummy Southern English accent, <laughs> even as I'm speaking those other languages. And it's possible to do the same in Scots. So that was... Um, that opens up some opportunities for me, which mm. is good. Mm. So yeah, I thought that was really interesting. I really, um, I, I, I come away from that conversation with a sense of relief. Uh, yeah, you know, because he kind of removed the charge of you should know more about Scots and put it back at the kind of the foot of the Scots people themselves. It's a really interesting point, isn't it? You know, it's up to individual speakers of languages to defend and promote those own languages. Um, other people aren't going to do it for them. So, yeah, it's not it's not my fault that I wasn't taught Scots in school. Um, yeah, I, I still that doesn't mean to say I should be lazy and complacent about finding more out about it and making an effort. Yeah, I th- with it. But. I think he it, he gave us he gave us both um, some tools, didn't he? Or gave gave people uh, a couple of tools. So for somebody who's moving there like you, there's his recommendation that you can, you know, you you can start to adopt some of the vocabulary and the ways of speaking, which is, and as long as it's done out of a sense of respect and affection is a good thing. But I thought his point that as a tourist, you can ask about Scots and you can get people speaking about their language. I mean, that's true of anyone, really. And people love speaking about their own language, no matter where you are in the world. And the same being true of Scotland and Scots. So that was a really interesting um, suggestion. It was, um, and, and again, reassuring, because I think... And I think this is potentially because it is sounds so similar to English that the fear is that you sound like you're kind of somehow mocking um, mocking it. Yeah. And I think that's true. That's not just a Scots thing. You know, I think that's probably true of, of lots of that. We're, we're, you know, we're terrified of getting it wrong and therefore causing offence. Um, and yet... I was also aware that his, his example of what it might sound like to sound like a patronising Englishman speaking, trying to speak Scots, sounded exactly like me. So that was <laughs> you know, basically uh, that felt fraught. It, you know, it felt it like I was in real danger there. But but better to give it a try, right, and and attempt it rather than just ignore it and and continue in English. Um, yeah, I think it's just that 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 openness. Um, and yeah. And I, what I also loved in the conversation was his kind of acknowledgement and information about that connection with the landscape and how kind of words are derived from the landscape and link people back to the landscape. And it kind of takes me back 
hearing him describe some of those words takes me right back into the kind of mystery and um, splendor that is the Highlands landscape. Yeah, and and for, I really liked his point that uh, again back to what I was saying in the uh, at the beginning of the podcast that languages are about people and about people's experiences. And so his point that there's so many ge- uh, geographical and geological terms in Scots taken from Gaelic because people would have needed those words to find their way through the landscape as they were moving into it. That's really um, you can in the same way. You know, I often think about the the fact that all so many languages in the world are Indo-European languages. You know, Persian. Um, Welsh. You know, at some point in history, there were people stood together who spoke the same language, and one turned left and one turned right, and those languages diverged at that point as they walked across the landscape. And you can track back through that tree by hearing those words popping up in different places. I, th- I think it's really, it's really fascinating to to think about. It is, and with that in mind, and this is a bad uh, method for audio, but uh, I have already got um, well on order. My copy of I, I jumped on Amazon as soon as he finished and got my copy of a, a Scots Dictionary of Nature by Amanda Thompson ordered. So I'm looking forward to that arriving. And, That's exciting and delving, delving into that. Um, great. Good. Well, I'm looking forward to the updates. I will be I will be fluent within a week. <laughs> no, I have, I have no doubt. Oh